Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to the Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. So far, we are excited to bring you an episode today. But before we get going, Sebastian and I have to have a little conversation. Yeah. All right, Sebastian, next car, what's it going to be for you? Ooh, okay. So I currently have a Toyota Prius that I mentioned previously. Name is Jojo, um, red Toyota Prius, and uh, I really like it. Um, and I think, to be honest, I have to I have to be a millennial and say that my next car I want it to be a Tesla. So I think it's going to be a Tesla. All right, you're going to help Elon Musk get to Mars. I kind of help Elon Musk or whoever creates like a decent electric car by the time I need an electric car. Yeah. I like it. All right. What about you, Price? I just bought a a hybrid Avalon. That's great. It's really quiet. You liking it? That's good. Oh yeah. Love it. Matter of fact, it's just smooth and things like this. It's, you know, really comfortable. Nice. That's a sedan, right? Yeah. I was going to get a Camry, but my wife told me that the back window was too, too slanted. You, she couldn't see out of it. So I had to go mm-hmm. up one. That's it's a big deal with that Arizona sun, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Alex, what about you? So I, I'm living the Subaru lifestyle right now. And, and I love the Subaru lifestyle, but my wife and I were tossing around. We were like, if by the time we actually need a new car, if there's like any kind of SUV, that's like actually plug in electric, we'd mm-hmm. consider it, but just like, Right. You know, car seats in like a, I don't know if a Tesla has a car seat, but like, right. I, I imagine it's the cyber truck. There. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the cyber exactly. Truck. I need a cyber truck. That's right. right. Cool. Our special guest today is Price Fishback. Price is the APS professor of economics at the University of Arizona. He earned his PhD in economics from the University of Washington in 1983. His research area of interest is the political economy of Roosevelt's New Deal during the 1930s. And as an aside, I've digitized many pages of things for Price and archives related to this <laughs> nice. when I was his research assistant in graduate school. Uh, and he examines both the determinants of the New Deal spending and loans and their impact on local economies throughout the U.S. Uh, Price is also a research affiliate at the Center for Economic History at Australia National University, a CAGE fellow at Warwick, a program scholar at the Hoover Program on Regulation and Rule of Law, a fellow at TIA CREF Institute, and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And recently, he's become an honorary professor at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. So if you want anybody to send you really good wine, Price is probably your guy. Uh, so Price, thank you for being I here today. I can say South African wine's pretty good. <laughs> it yeah. is great, among other things there. Uh, so how, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and in addition to all that awesome stuff we just learned about you, uh, is there any fun shareable fact you can uh, give to our listeners here? Unshareable fact? Well, I, I announced swim meets for the University of Arizona. Actually, before I lost my voice at one point, or actually, I announced the Olympics in 1996. That was wow. exciting. Fancy wow. world records. Fancy. So I even blow out a microphone in the middle of announcing a race. Is that like the the NBA equivalent of like busting a backboard when you dunk? Blowing out a <laughs> I microphone? think so. I think okay. so. <laughs> And for how long, how long did you do that? Uh, so at the, at the na- international level and stuff, I did it for about 10 years and at wow. the national level. And then I had to have, I had to have a surgery on my vocal cords. So now I just do local meets. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's very interesting. I used to be a swimmer. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, great. Oh yeah. Back, back in the day. <laughs> All right. Well, what, what was your, what was your stroke? Your freestyle? So I freestyle you? and then, um, oh, how do you, uh, it's called breaststroke, I think in English. Yeah. That's right. What is it in Spanish? Pecho. Yeah, I like I couldn't swim breaststroke to save my life. 
All right. So in addition to fun facts, we got to get serious into business. Are there any serious business things you would like to talk about, like a research paper or any other kind of project you want to highlight? Well, so I, I'm working on a research paper I'm pretty excited about. I've done a lot of work on, on Roosevelt's New Deal, but not that much on the impact of uh, Rose, on the New Deal on race and things like this. And so oh, I have a paper I've been working on with Jessamine Schaller and uh, Evan Taylor on access to work relief for blacks and whites and foreign born. And mm. so it turns out that the way the New Deal is structured, that the federal government would say they were trying not to discriminate, but the people who are making decisions on who are eligible for the work relief were the people at the local level. Mm. So what we do is we, we have the, the, the 1940 census. And so we have the complete 1940 census. And so we're able to run for each county, we're able to run regressions that control for a whole bunch of stuff like education and home ownership and uh, even type of employment and things like this, and then try to see, um, estimate the difference between black access and white access and foreign born access. And it's really interesting. The results turn out to show that uh, outside the South, in the vast majority of counties, uh, blacks with similar characteristics, at least the ones you can measure in the census, mm -hmm. um, were more likely to get work relief than whites but foreign born were less likely to get relief. Now mm -hmm. inside the South, that, that's still true for like 30% of the counties. So in 30% of the Southern counties, you're actually getting that kind of thing where they're getting more, they're more likely to get work relief than, than whites. And then we do, we run some political economy regressions to try to look at what kind of factors would influence that. And so what we're finding is, is outside the South, actually the percentage, the share of, of the black population has a substantial effect. And the reason is, is they can actually vote outside mm. the South. Uh, inside the South, it doesn't seem to have much of an effect at all. But uh, one of the things is, is that if you have a lot of whites in the, in the South and actually in, in the North as well with complementary type jobs, where their jobs would be things that would be complementary to the types of jobs that, that Blacks would do, mm -hmm. uh, Blacks are more likely to get work relief. Mm. Interesting. Now, so what's really weird though is, is that you look at um, what happens in the labor markets at the time, the, the, mm -hmm. the you know, the non-government labor markets. And in the North, Blacks are much are much more likely to become unemployed than wow. whites are during that time frame. And in the South, the difference is not very large at all. Mm. So they're actually offsetting some of these things. Interesting. So is this, is how, how far along are you in this project? Is this a working paper now? Is it under review? Is it? Uh, it's kind of, it's just before a working paper. So okay. I've been working on it for about four or five years. Um, so not yeah, a I long just time in economic history world. Yeah, that's right. But and so, but you know, that is a long time for this paper because it's mostly <laughs> census data and stuff. Thanks for that awesome uh, explanation of your work, Price. You can we can put a link to Jessamine and Evans' websites uh, as well, so you can see more of the cool work that they are doing. Uh, before we get into the top of the day, uh, a segment that we've been doing that has been pretty popular has been talking about how people do work. So there's a big spectrum and how people approach getting the various aspects of their jobs done. Uh, most of the time, people talk about how they approach uh, doing research tasks, but it could be anything because, you know, you, you do lots of different things. There's lots of aspects of your job. So we'd love to know, you know, how you how you work in a given day. What's what's your approach? What do you do? What's your secret to success? Well, so I don't know if I've been successful, but I, I can say <laughs> this. Usually the... Um, what I try to do is I try to get up early and try to get as much work as I can get done before noon as possible. Okay. What does so waking to, up early mean? Well, I usually get up around 530 right now. In the summertime, wow. I'll get up around five. Wow. Uh, now, lately, what's been happening is that because of the, of the um, 
pandemic. COVID stuff and being stuck at home. Like I have a five, four by six section of a bedroom is what my office has become this <laughs> year, basically. Actually thought about it though, Alex has seen my office at work. So if you think about it, I actually really have about four by six feet. Of yeah, and once you add in all the books in your That's office at work, yeah. you might just have like a- They're all just kind of towering towards yeah. me. It'll kind of be a follow on top Barely of Barely move. <laughs> but usually, usually now this, what I've been doing though, is actually instead of having to commute, I've been watching NBA basketball and college basketball. Oh, and cool. <laughs> tape, tape the previous night's games and watch the fourth quarter. Nice. If the players are too slow, you know, they're walking the ball up the court. I'll goose them up the court with the, uh, <laughs> with the fast forward as well. Nice. Uh, so, but because my wife doesn't want to watch basketball at night. So this is my way of doing it without bothering her. <laughs> so, so Anyways. far the workflow tip is uh, go into a bedroom and watch basketball. I'm <laughs> yeah, liking no, no, his no. workflow tip. <laughs> That's a major workflow tip. I've got to say. Okay. So, but actually, usually, usually what happens is I get to work around. I, I usually start working about seven. Okay. All right. And the, the reason I go in early is actually that's my best time of the day. Personally, that, right. that, that that's a good time for me to think. And actually, a lot of people in academics don't usually show up to school till about 11 right. or 12. So that means a lot. I don't get bothered very much by anybody else. So I get a pretty extended period of time where it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, four hours is a really good block of time, I think. And, and then when you say work, you truly focus on research work. Or are you doing like emails and other kind of like classes or a kind of work? Uh, mostly, mostly research. Okay. I'm trying to get that block of research. I mean, I, I try to look at my email real quick to see if there's anything I need to respond to. Mm -hmm. and, but other than that, I'm really trying to get the re get the research done because that's the thing where I really need the block of time. Got it. Yeah. And then I try to reserve like, and then the afternoons I usually start teaching at 11 or later than that, and mm -hmm. have, try to have meetings in the afternoons, go to seminars in the afternoons, gotcha. things like that. How? By um, the way, oh sorry, just a quick question on on the teaching part. Obviously, you've been teaching for a while, I assume. Is it is it now that you just like kind of like, you know, start to teach class and, and you're good to go, everything is set up? Or do you still do a lot of, a lot of like prep work maybe the day before or some other time? Well, it depends on the class. So uh, one of the primary parts of my teaching load is, is the MBA managerial economics class. Okay. And I've been teaching that since 1998. So that one's wow. kind of like, you know, I've got the set kind of lectures right. I'm going to give and things like that. Now the lectures do change because what I know changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how I tell it and the, mm -hmm. the examples I use change. Mm -hmm. um, for Then I'm teaching economic history classes usually. There's also a class I teach that Alex took that uh, is a research methods class in the first year. It's a core course for graduate mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that one, we, we try to introduce all the faculty in the department. So oh, wow. each each day, there's another faculty member comes in with mm -hmm. a paper. Student presents it for 15 minutes like they're at a conference, and then we discuss the paper for an hour. And then we, with the students driving the discussion. So I actually control how much the faculty teach or speak. Gotcha. But anyway, so for that one, I have to read the paper, make sure I know what's going on. Right. right, right, right. And, and then uh, the other one is typically a graduate economic history class. And so it just depends on the readings we pick. And those are changing all the time. So a lot of times I, I'm picking readings that'll force me to read the book or the article. And uh, price does require the most reading of any class I've ever had. It's like a book <laughs> in a paper every other week. Oh, so God. it's a, it is a it large every amount week. of it was preparation. Every week, it wasn't every other week. It was every oh, I'm week. <laughs> I'm remembering more positively. Than <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you were saying like at 11, you do teach and then what else? Okay, and then then I, then I have meetings. Uh, typically, I go to meetings and stuff like that. So I try to push all the meetings in the afternoon because by the time I get the afternoon, I'm starting to get tired. I'm not thinking that well anyway, and so I can just right. kind of push through. And teaching, right. I I can get excited, so I can just yeah. push my way through that too. 
Gotcha. Um, yeah. So I usually spend, I usually there when I, when, when I'm there at school, I, I usually, you know, leave the house about six 30, usually get home about five 30, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then here, wherever I don't have to commute, so that's why I've replaced with by watching basketball instead. That's my commute. Nice. I love it. Uh, so in that block of time in the beginning of the day, we've we've talked with a lot of people about how they pick what to do, mm -hmm. and I I know very much like you you especially have a hundred different ideas you could be working on. So what you actually work on in that four hour block, there's a large opportunity cost of. How do you pick what you're going to do? Is it like this semester you're just going to get this paper out, or like what what is it? Well, yeah, I've got a significant number of co-authors, and so it's often determined by what co-authors on my case the most <laughs> at the time. Um, but a lot of times, you know, so there's certain things I'm trying to get done. Uh, it's not always the co-authors push. It's, it's actually me as well to try to do these things. So oftentimes, you know, you'd set deadlines to go to conferences or set deadlines to, to send the paper in and do things like that. And so that's what kind of determines things. And so I've just got a range of different people. And, and you know, the main thing about this is once you start a, a process, a lot of times what you're doing is revising papers that you thought were done, but the referees are telling you are not done. <laughs> and then you send it off for, you know, however long it's going to take to get it back again. And then suddenly it, it re returns and you think, oh, it should have gotten accepted. But no, yeah. it, there are more referee <laughs> comments that you have to fix and do things like that. So that actually influences the timing as well. And also, uh, so this is kind of like a schedule until five. Uh, so after 5.30, do you keep working or sometimes or not, or it's kind of random? I do my best to stop. I mean, so before COVID or wherever, I tried to do everything at the office mm -hmm. so that when I came home, I was there live and I've just, right. you know, doing other things. Right. And so if I start working at night, then I won't sleep very well. And mm. so, you know, I might, I might, and given that I'm getting up pretty early, like at 5, 5.30, things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I go to bed pretty early too. So like right. 30 or nine. So. Yeah, yeah. And do you, do you also not work on the weekends then? Uh, sometimes it depends. When I, when I was the editor of the journal of economic history, I worked a lot on the weekends. That's kind of okay. when I did the journal, Got but it. my wife has convinced me that you better have some time for me. So. <laughs> right. That's right. And, and she's uh, right. So and actually, <laughs> that's so right. I spend more time talking to her on the weekends. And how long have you had this kind of like schedule of steady state? Has it been there a while or, you know, have you been there for a while or are there like always like little tweaks that, that happen every year or something? Well, the, uh, mostly I've been doing the getting up early and starting early has been my, the, the thing I've been doing from the beginning of my career, actually, mm -hmm. even, even when I was a graduate student. Now, mm -hmm. when I was a graduate student, I also stayed up a lot later. Mm -hmm. In my first semester, first quarter as a as an assistant professor, I wasn't finished my dissertation, so I was doing a lot of stuff at night. Then, then I was working from like eight o'clock in the morning till eleven o'clock at night, gotcha. stumbling home, and uh, because I had to teach a course for the first time that I'd never taught. Gotcha. Plus, I was finishing my thesis, and so gotcha. that was pretty intense. Awesome. Well, that's a great place to maybe pause and and shift topics to the topic of the day. Um, so today we want to talk about admissions to the PhD program, um, and and uh, so this is hopefully a conversation that can be helpful to not only grad students, to potential grad students, but more importantly to people um, that uh, have students and they're trying to get them to go to grad school, um, and and we want to 
first talk about the basics of how that process works, because there's probably a lot of people who listen to the podcast that may not actually know how that works. Um, and then demystify other things that are a little bit more of the hidden curriculum. I think that's the first time I've ever said the name of the podcast. I don't know so meta. So meta. Um, so maybe let's start with, with the main components, like the very basics, uh, so, so we can all get on board. Say you want to apply to a PhD program, in economics at least, what are materials that you will be asked to, to apply? Well, typically the materials will ask you, you need a transcript, obviously, and usually a statement of purpose. Uh, you typically need three or four letters of recommendation. Um, Your GRE, right? Uh, oh, yeah, GRE scores. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's pretty much most of what you need to do. I think what really is important is what is sitting in that transcript and what's sitting in the GRE scores. Mm, okay. Because uh, the, the most important thing, so economics, particularly in economics, I mean, the, the economics you learn in graduate school is like a quantum leap above what you mm -hmm. learn as an undergraduate in terms of math background right. and things like that. Mm -hmm. So like our minimum requirements for people coming into the program is that they have three semesters of calculus, a semester of linear algebra, mm -hmm. and a proof course like analysis. Mm -hmm. And so given that, usually for every math course, what you really need, what, what you really understand is what the previous math course taught you. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably need some more on top of that as well. So a lot of times people are coming in as math minors and things like that. So it's really important to realize that that's going to be a big component of what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, not every program is going to require that, but all the top 50 ones will, I think. Okay. And yeah. And so, and just one quick question to set it up. Um, the, the experience also that you're telling us just to contextualize. So you've been a part in admissions committee for PhDs as well, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. I was the graduate director for 10 years. Okay. And then I've been on the admissions committee or at least part of the graduate committee ever since. Okay. And you've right. sent many students to PhD programs who are undergrads at Arizona. Yeah, that's true too. Okay, great. So and you at least have the information from, from both sides, which is helpful. Right, right. And so okay. I think it's really important that they have that math background. And then- okay. I would also strongly suggest that they try to get uh, hooked in with the professor and try to do some research with the professor. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that usually looks good as well. So a lot of times uh, that can maybe offset a little bit on the grades because mm -hmm. uh, it shows that you're actually actively thinking about kind of research type issues mm -hmm. and the professor actually will often talk about that. Okay. Usually for in most cases too, I mean, if someone's excited enough, if a student's excited enough to research with a faculty member, that's gonna really impress the faculty member. Okay. And then they can, they can describe what the, what the project is and they can talk about how, what the work was that, that, that the student mm -hmm. was doing. Okay. Uh, so writing, a, writing an honors thesis or writing a paper with a, with a right. professor or working as a research assistant, I think is really, really helpful. Throughout time, has it become more and more competitive or has this, these sort of been stable requirements uh, throughout at least your tenure at Arizona? Oh, I think that I think it's always been difficult to get into a top 10, top 20 program. Um, you know, plus you have to get a good GRE scores too. That's going to be really important. Friends of mine at Harvard have told me that, you know, we, we're picking the very cream of the crop. Mm -hmm. And Harvard and MIT are kind of waiting to see who gets an NSF dissertation fellowship because oh, wow. they're, they're already being screened there and they only give out about 15 or 20 of those. Right. And then they make a decision. And then on top of that, then they pick the top student out of Brazil and the top student out of Germany and things like this. Oh. And so, you know, you're not only competing locally, but you're competing internationally. Mm. Um, 
And so, you know, there are a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of places that, that produce PhD students who actually do pretty well, end up at state universities and, right. and research universities and things. Right. Um, you know, it's always, it's always best probably to go to the best place you can go mm-hmm. because it's, it's harder to rise than it is to fall in terms of where hmm. you're going to be placed. Interesting. But let me, I want to back up for a second. And then we talked about the materials and I, I really want a, a little bit more clarification on the process from the university side. So okay. you guys get a ton of applications and then what is the, usually I think what you guys think of is like the first step is there's like, is there like a cut by GPA, cut by GRE score, cut by, or, or no cuts and everyone gets in and, and you know. That, oh, there are a lot of cuts. Okay. So uh, the, the fundamental thing is, is that, you know, GRE score on the math in particular is going to play a role. Okay. You'd also like to see strong GRE scores on the verbal and the writing, but that that's, you know, it's not as important in economics as it is in other fields. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, so you, you that math background's huge, though. Good grades, A's, and some B's in the math courses, I think, are another thing we're looking for. Okay. Because uh, we, we want to make sure, if you don't have the math background, you're going to spend all your time learning math the first year, and you're going to flunk out because you're not going to learn the economics. But so you guys don't really focus then on overall GPA. It's just like what grade. So if, if I took, let's say, you know, a bunch of classes that have nothing to do with like math or econ, um, that doesn't really matter. It just matters like what are the, those grades on the critical classes that I got? Is that Yeah, true? pretty much. Now you have okay. to have at least a 3.0 or the graduate college is going to dump you, at least okay. in Arizona. But I think I that's see. generally true. So everywhere. there's an overall GPA cutoff that we can think about 3.0. And then there is like a numerical GRE cutoff for the GRE. Right. And, and so and we're, we're trying to identify the people who are going to be most likely to succeed. And, and so that means that really you, you want to look at the kinds of courses that are associated with the type of stuff we're going to do. Okay. And so the math is so important, you need to make sure they've got that. Right. I've had a number of students in the past, less so now, but in the past, who, who said, well, you know, I'll learn the math between now and, and when I get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, right. was a, that was a recipe for disaster. And so I've actually told students, look, you should wait a year. And, and once you've got the math, then see us. Because see. early on in my, my career, this is in the early 90s, wherever we accepted some of those people and they died quickly. Right. That and what is, your, what is your sense, is, do your sense is that, is this practice standard across most schools or there's some like wiggle room that some schools have in which like, okay, you can pass the cutoff if you maybe got a bad grade, but you have something else, you know? Well, I think if you have a bad grade, one bad grade, that's one thing. Okay. Uh, but, but you just need to demonstrate that, that you can do this, that you don't want to go into graduate school with a weakness, right? Because that weakness will get exposed really quickly. You want to go into graduate school feeling good mm-hmm. about what you know about these kind of things because you're going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff that's going right. to really blow your mind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you need to be ready and have mm-hmm. all the background that we tell you we need you to have. Okay. And yeah. I think that's true for every program. So I guess an, an interesting thing here is that, like, I, I guess let me ask this question, then I'll, then I'll maybe see if my comment holds any value. Uh, how many people then do you cut out after like these right. sort of numeric... No one's yeah. looked at anything. Like, is this like ninety percent of the applications are gone, or are we talking just like? Uh, that's 50%? a pretty good chunk. Yeah, ninety percent is probably too high. Um, you know, for us, like we're, we're ranked in the in the thirties and forties, right? Yeah. And so we're we, and we've had a lot of success at placing students and things like that. And we have a pretty strong filter, but we're willing to take more risks than a lot of schools are, mm-hmm. uh, because we found a number of people who actually who we could identify who we thought we could could do it, mm-hmm. or we had inside knowledge on. So mm-hmm. letters of recommendation also are extremely important. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, cause they, cause you know, you want to, we're trying, if it's at a school that doesn't have a PhD program and you don't know much about it, you can find some real gems there, mm-hmm. but you, you, they need, you know, you need to find, find signals that are telling you. So a strong math, math background would be one signal doing research with a faculty member would be another signal. The faculty member saying, look, this is one of the, you know, they come along every five years or every 10 years kind of person. Mm-hmm. That's a real signal as well. Okay. Um, so then, so then, okay, so then you do this cutoff and you, let's say you have like about 25% of the applications then that are kind of like past the cutoff. And that's where you start looking fully in the materials of large recommendations and the essays. Yeah, whatever. pretty much. And so, and a lot of times we're looking for like, you know, former students who send students to us. We really trust them because okay. inside knowledge, you know, the more you if, you, if you know the letter writers, that's really helpful. Okay. But, you know, a lot of times you're, you know, the, the school you, people are not, they're not right. going to know the letter writer. Right. And so the letter writer just wants to be honest about what the person's like and how, how good they are and what they've done. Mm-hmm. But I think you can tell a lot from the transcript. And, and, and also, yeah, we spend some time talking to people too. And then we kind of rank them and we put them in groups. So here's a people who we would automatically give, give money to. And then we have groups who, mm-hmm. well, there's a next tier we're kind of putting on a waiting list for film for, mm-hmm. for money. Mm-hmm. And in that context, then you want to look at uh, who you'd like to admit, but and, and take a risk on, and maybe not give much money to. Okay. You know, gotcha. our goal is 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 to to try to find. We'd like to fund everybody in the first mm-hmm. year that that comes in. Mm-hmm. We don't often have enough money to do that, mm-hmm. but we also take chances, and then we fight like hell to make sure that we get a money by by sometime during the year. And if right. they're doing well in the program, we make sure they got money for the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. So I guess now I want to kind of circle back to the point I wanted to bring up about before we talked about this cutoff is like a thing that's been discussed quite a bit. And I think is like probably just correct is that, you know, this like huge focus on like math and scores and like, like this sort of uh, almost getting exactly the skills you need to succeed in a PhD is almost like getting a PhD beforehand doing research, (laughs) like we'll, we'll crowd out some types of voices and some types of thought from the economic profession. It's like, let's say you're a student that like found economics late or, or didn't do so well in a couple of math classes. Maybe you weren't serious or maybe you just like took them out of order or something. Um, like what, what, what do you say to like a student like that? Or if you are advising a student like that, that you think could succeed in a PhD program or could, you know, you know, benefit the profession as a whole, but like, you know, maybe had a 2.0 for a couple of years or, you know, didn't take, calc three but but seems pretty good and like they could do it right so so like if if people did poorly like first early in their career you know they have people go off to school and they mess around do all sorts mm-hmm. of things and so you see that we and we've had a lot of success with students who actually looked like that mm-hmm. uh, who then caught fire and got interested in something in economics or and things like that and so those kind of people we actually look for because their overall grade point average isn't going to be that, that high. And so we think we've got a better shot at competing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those kind of people we actually do look for. And so that's why we're looking so heavily at the math and the, and the economics grades. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're trying, to, we're trying to build a story about this person. Can we see them do these kind of things? And that's mm-hmm. where the letters are so important as well. Because, you know, sometimes people have stuff that happens in their lives. They lose family or something, right. you know, lose a father or mother or, mm-hmm. or sister or brother uh, or grandparent even. And that, that really blows them away for a totally. year or two. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of have to restart. And so we try to take that into account as well in, in trying to identify people. If they've done really poorly in the math and stuff, though, I would advise them to retake the courses. 
because if they did poorly in the course, it, it's not going to look, it's not going to do them much good to come and then get, and then unless it, they can really learn it quickly, which is not you, easy to do with math. Do you feel like, do you, is there enough time to care about where they're taking the course? Like I, I'm thinking of a student who graduated from undergrad, wants to go to grad school, and now it's trying to take this advanced calculus or real analysis class and has options to do it online from different universities. Like, is there... Right. Is, is that signal of where you take it matters or not necessarily? I think a little bit. I mean, so I, um, it's going to matter some. It certainly matters to some of my colleagues. It doesn't matter as much to me, but I've definitely okay. heard them say, well, we're not sure whether this course is really, a, you know, right. well taught. So there's going to be like within like within university variation across years because the committee is going to be formed of different people who may have put different value on different things about that. Yeah, but the committee's pretty stable. I mean, okay. the and, and a lot of the attitudes are the same, even if you if you shift the committee. Okay. Um, so I think that that that's going to be. I think it, it's not like it's it's truly detrimental, but if, if 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 someone's working and you can see that they're working and they they're they're taking the course to build it up, mm -hmm. and they get an A in a course at a place that's not as good, that's fine. But if they get a B, then they're gonna there's gonna be some questions about okay about that or a C right and things like that. So. Because what we're looking for is people who can make it through the program, right? And you know, and economics, you know, there are a lot of lot of places across the university where the, the mathematic requirements are just not that that intense. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are a variety of different ways to do it, and it's based on the field, like languages and stuff, right? Um, but for us, if you if you can't do the mathematics, you can't get through the first year, mm -hmm. and and that's generally true of almost any economics program you can name, mm -hmm. and and so. You 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 want to help people get through, but I mean it's just going to be it's going to be overwhelming to the student themselves. Yeah, yeah. Because already like, I was a math major, and my program wasn't super mathy when I right. went to school at University of Washington in the 1980s or whatever. But right, uh, it, it 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 made a huge difference to my ability to to get through the program. Um, I was looking at my transcript, and I did get a C in real analysis one but I did get a B minus in real analysis too. And I have some A's on, on some other stuff. So, you know, I, what, it's not stellar, I would say, but some, some places did admit me. Um, and I think it's because the difference, so I applied twice. One, the first time I didn't get in anywhere, but then the second time, two things changed. One, it was an RA for Mushfiq Mubarak and he wrote me a letter of recommendation. And I think that helped obviously. And then the second one is that I, went to the AA summer program where I also got a letter from them. And I think so, even though my grades hadn't changed nor I took extra classes, maybe that's what, what helped me um, to be in the radar of at least two universities that granted me admission. Well, I think that, as a matter of fact, that, that was a big change in your application. Both, really? both of those wow. features. Oh yeah, because you, now you had some that's research awesome. experience plus the AEA is a really right. good training ground for people to get them into PhD programs. And so and that's a really good feature to jump in. So. That was a huge change in your application. Wow, that's so funny because, like, I think, like, I think I knew that, but like now that you say that, like, it feels so <laughs> validating. And I'm a professor. Like, this is not even like you know. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah, but I mean that that was big time, and so I think that that's really important is is because yeah. you gave a bunch of signals that you were excited about what you were doing. Yeah, and right. and this is a Absolutely. tough thing for me too, Sebastian, because like people talk about the, a lot of people on Twitter. Price, I know you're not on Twitter. Say like they give the advice of like how to get into a top ten program. And it is not necessarily, I'm not saying that they're wrong or lying or something, but it is, it's right. unreasonable. I mean, honestly, it's, it's like, it's basically <laughs> like be perfect and never make mistakes and be a nerd. And it's like, it's, it's like, you have to do all the things and get lucky. 
And I got terrible grades my first years of college. And then I tried really hard. And then I took graduate real analysis and I got a bad grade in that. And I thought I was like toast. And I got into like one program with any amount of money. And like, I, so I hesitate, like, I don't want to respond on these Twitter threads and take them over with like, you can do it, you know, with like the right. survival bias story, but like, right. and it's important to know that there are these, like, that's not the only way to right. do this. Well, graduate real and, analysis and, is a step up from undergrad real analysis. Well, don't too. take that as your first proof-based <laughs> math class. Definitely oh, not. Gosh, I no, would definitely stay. And I would also say, Alex, too, like, you know, like, I mean, I, I don't know how to get into a top yeah, school. Yeah, I don't know. Even yeah. now. Like, I... So if a student asks me, like, how do I get into Harvard, MIT, Princeton? I'm like, I don't know. QJE, <laughs> have one of those. That might work. Yeah, I was like, I don't know. Like, I know how to get to the to the kind just of just like need to be on the top end of everything. School. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I don't really provide advice to that because I'm like, that's not that's not where I have experience. I, I was going to ask in in this process of like, okay, after the cutoff, we're looking at letters of recommendations to signal some research on interest. Uh, how much weight then is given to the statement to statement of purpose? Um, because it seems like with the letters and the scans of Jerry, you can, you're getting a lot of information. So what is, what is really the value added of the statement or the essay? Well, I think it, it gives you an idea of what the student's thinking about, uh, what kind of, what their interests are and things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the student, it gives you an idea whether the student actually kind of is interested in the school. Uh, so so know, well, for example, give me like a statement of purpose that would signal that they're interested in university or Arizona. Well, so, so the statement of purpose might pick out two or three people and, okay. and say, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in working with this person. I saw, like, say, Fishback's work on the New Deal or, okay. uh, mm-hmm. or Alex Hollingsworth's work in health economics and maybe describe a little bit, things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. But, but also it gives you an idea of what they're thinking about, what, why, they're, why they're studying economics. Because mm-hmm. what you're really looking for in a person who's coming, you want the, you're, you're looking for someone who's going to become a contributor in economics. Right. Uh, who, who, who they might contribute by doing frontier research at the, at the, in academics. Or they might contribute by being a professional economist for policy or for business and mm-hmm. things like that. So they, they can do the kind of analysis that, that we're expected to do. To be able to do that, I mean, the, the, just the statistics and the econometrics is going to require you to know linear algebra and know it really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a big jump right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's where you need to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I, I want to push on an MBA analogy that I like a lot, you know, where people find stuff that's like, you know, height isn't predictive of success in the MBA, but of course that's conditional on being really tall already and being in the <laughs> MBA. And so I, I hear things a lot of, you know, like grades aren't predictive or GRE isn't predictive. Um, but, you know, obviously that's conditional on, on, you know, being in some selected sample. So let's, let's say that like, you've got your 25%, you've got your sample, uh, maybe like the give or take. 10 points on the GRE and in, in your top 25% of, of your applicants isn't, you're not so worried about that. Uh, is what you're saying, like you're looking for this other stuff then with, within that 25% that's going to figure out like, is this person creative? Like, do they have grit? Like, are they going to be able to do something? And, and that always comes from like the letter of recommendation or previous research experience. Like that's pretty or, and, much and like the, the statement of purpose too. Okay. So all those things, cause, cause, you know, the grades, all they do is tell you how they did on taking tests, basically. Or maybe, you know, in some cases, maybe they wrote some papers and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the opportunity to see, um, it's the opportunity to see, can they be creative and can they take that next step? Because, you know, think about this. We're, we're really scouting talent is what we're trying to do. Because to, to us at the University of Arizona, our PhD program is extremely important because we think that this is a real signal of our success if our students do well. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're looking for people that will 
people that we can help train, we can add a lot of value to, and that they can go out and find the kind of jobs that they would like to find mm-hmm. uh, and, and be, be happy in the jobs. And so that's, that's what we're ser- searching for. And so we really would like to avoid, if we can, people who are going to flunk out or people who, for the fir- after the first couple of years of doing well in courses, really struggle to find, uh, to, to start doing research or start finding topics for themselves. Mm-hmm. Because it's really difficult to take that next step. I mean, that's, that's a learning by doing process mm-hmm. that takes a lot of imagination as to how you yeah. do a research. I mean, you guys are successful researchers, so you know what it's like to take that big step. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, yeah. that's what we're looking for. And in terms of then going back to the literature process, is it, is it the case that like, you know, one person in the committee gets to read 20 applications, another person gets 20? And then like, does each person has a rubric? Do the people get points? Like, how is that process of like, how do we select them? Or is it just like, this person's a group A, this person's a group B? Like, how does that process of the, of the scoring work? Well, I think that that varies from place to place. Sure. I, whatever. Most people read all the files that are oh. still in, in play, like okay. maybe 60 or 70 files. Okay. And, and then, you know, cause we want to compare them or whatever. And then, and then we start ranking them. So we have meetings where we talk about them and say, you know, who are your top five or who are your top 10? Okay. And so, and then we looked at those five or 10 and things like that. And then we take, okay, now who's in the next group. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and to some extent, you know, we, we try to have like Mo Zhao, who's one of, one of my colleagues. Uh, she's from China originally, and she's a very successful IO economist. Mm-hmm. Mo is really, is really good at, at, at kind of looking at the Chinese, the Chinese applications and stuff and trying to identify. Because, you yeah. know, sometimes you look at different countries have different grading scales. Totally, totally. And, and so, you know, like in some place or wherever, 20 may be the max, but they never give more than a 12. Right. You know? And so the, Mo can see through that in China. And so we also try to, to help have people who specialize in particular countries to try to make sure we're seeing uh, what the right stuff is for those. I, I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more, but not just speaking about internationally, but like there's a range of like, like within the US, I feel like we have like many tiers of systems too. And mm-hmm. like there are students that go to like elite Ivies, there are students that go to big state schools where there's gonna, they're going to have famous advisors and other students that like are maybe equally as smart, but like their parents didn't go to college or like, you know, they went to some like local kind of liberal arts college and like maybe they didn't even take these math classes. Like, is there any opportunity for a student like that outside of just like, like, if, like I guess I, I'm trying to think of like ways to diversify the profession. Like, is it just that those students have to realize they want a PhD and then like take these math classes or, or, or the, just go to a different type of PhD program? So what we find though, is that uh, at small schools and stuff, we, we, we get good applicants from small schools and, and it, it's very useful however. So what the, you know, they're, I've, I'm always looking for those kind of people. Matter of fact, everybody committee on there is looking for those kind of people. And so, and most of the time they've got advisors who tell them, look, you need to do this. And if they don't, I've written letters to people in the past to say, look, you look great, except for you're missing this. Mm-hmm. And so if you can, if you can get that, we're, we're, we'd love to have you and, and, and uh, give See, you money. That's helpful actually to, to send that type of feedback. I've heard, right. um, and, and no, but none of them ever came to Arizona after oh, <laughs> they did the thing and then like went <laughs> somewhere. Like, taking my advice. Better. I mean, they may right, have taken right, my right, advice, right, right. but, but you know, so I, I, but, but I went, we wouldn't have met them otherwise. And so I, I think that's really useful. I mean, I would love to have more diversity in economics and, and things, and we're constantly looking at it. And, and, and so, but, but there are these barriers you have to overcome in terms of just hitting the field. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so what's there are minimum requirements for math and, and for economics that you just got to meet to be able to do, be, be able to get a PhD in economics. Yeah. And that's going to be true in sciences and, and other things. And, and frankly, it's true in linguistics or languages right. or, you know, if you can't write well or whatever, I'm not, it's, you're not going to be an English professor. Right. So then one question, for example, is like, I, I'm from Peru and I was born and raised there and I, I do mentor some students from there. And, and for one particular person, let's say, two of their letters were from two professors of universities in Peru and then one letter is mine. And, but let's say that person only had letters from Peru. How, like, and you know, you, they apply to a place like Virginia or Southern or any other university and like, there's no one there who can tell them like, you know, what this letter uh, is, inti- like, I guess, how to mitigate or how to uh, uh, improve the probabilities of somebody who their letters that have been written are maybe by people that totally you guys don't know, nor, nor maybe you don't even know the university, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I think that we're we're always always looking for that. So that's where the, you know, what the, partly it's where the math skills are, but also it's partly what the what the professor says. Because you're not going to know. I mean, how many people do you know in the profession? I mean, you know, I've I've been in the Economic History Association for a long time, and I don't still don't know everybody in the association, and that's uh-huh. only about 800 people. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I and and so probably among people that i know as economists or whatever i, I know a lot and it's still not enough to be able to pick that out and particularly mm-hmm. in foreign countries and stuff totally but we take those letters seriously and and okay. and and we you know as a matter of fact we try to establish connections with with places as well because to make it easier to identify what's going on okay. but that's going to be true in the u.s as well so i think that you know just basically if they can show the profile and there are a lot of people in South America and Africa and things like mm-hmm. that who can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I think that, you know, just, just showing this profile where you can see a path, I think is, is what's going to be going on. I see. And, and so um, we're, we're trusting the faculty to be, be reasonable and, and, and to give us a good idea of what they think. Okay. Gotcha. And then related to that is, um, and, and you were talking about this process of like, you know, each, each person says like, here are my top 10 and then maybe here are my top 10 to 20 and whatever. Um, so if I think of like, I'm guessing you guys have a number of like, well, we don't want to admit more than X number of people. Like, how do you decide on that person on the margin? <laughs> I guess, is that like, you know, two people who have very similar transcripts from very similar schools, very similar GRE scores, right? The letters are, are strong. How do, I, how do I decide between those two people? Uh, we would admit them both. I mean, in that okay. case. Now the biggest problem is going to be money because we have more limits on money than we have. I and the, the other thing that's going to happen too is, you know, we're out there, but we're one of a hundred schools with sure. PhD programs, right? And so people are going to have options. Matter of fact, the students should definitely apply to multiple multiple schools, right? right. Um, and so in that case, whatever you know, our top twenty, we might lose eighteen out of that top twenty that we're doing. And so mm-hmm. our wait list ends up getting, you know, we end up giving money to a bunch of people on the wait list. Nice. So and what's so, the number of, of like admissions, like including the wait list that you give then? Or again, admissions and then waitlist, maybe something um, about. Well, I don't, I don't have a really good feel for that um, these days. Um, okay. See, in, in the old days when I was doing it, we, yeah. they were very, we were, the department was very conservative. And so I had to offer it. I could only offer it if it was available. Now mm, we're offering, we're, we're offering a lot more than what we're actually going to get, which is a much smarter way to do it. I see, I see. I see. Uh, because you're not going to get a whole bunch of these people. And, and so, and so, you know, we're, we're working on it. You know, we try, we try to, 
before COVID, we were flying people in. Now we're having Zoom online right. meetings. We call up the people. So uh, you, you actually get to meet them and that's because like after admissions or before admissions? Uh, usually after, after okay. we admit. But a lot see, of times, so sometimes we'll call people part. up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so like for, for some, some places where we, wanna, we actually want to call the student before admission because we want to talk to them because we want to okay. see how well they speak English. Oh, wow. Um, okay things like that, because the TOEFL and those kind of right. things don't tell you everything about what's going on. Totally, totally. Um, that's particularly useful, like, for, like, that's why most really good, because she can, she goes, she call, calls students up in China and things and talks to them and finds out more about what they were doing and gets a better sense. Um, you know, we're always looking for, for recommendations from our, from, from people we know. So we, we, we mm-hmm. want to do that. And so if you know somebody okay. at the school, uh, you definitely right. want to say something or, or you might even reach out and contact and say, look, this is someone who's really, really good. Uh, just right. contact the grad director. I, I have a few questions from sort of a, a different perspective. So before we transition to that, um, are there any things, other pieces of advice or information you'd like to impart to either a student or a faculty member trying to prepare a student for PhD admissions? I think that yeah. So the most important part is is having the having the story, is having the background and stuff that, that people need. Uh, from that point on, I think just reaching out to people and letting them know uh, that this person's really good and that, that they're they're worth looking at is, is important. Okay. It's the same thing as like as like placing faculty. Uh, you know how do you, how do you do that? Well, you reach out to all your colleagues and say, look, this person's good. I I'm really high on them and. Hopefully you can give them an interview. You know, a lot of times it doesn't pan out because they're not looking in that field. But it's, it's you know, it, it's, it, there's a lot more openings for PhD students than there are for faculty. I see. So. That's helpful. That's helpful. And the other thing, too, is I think that, you know, uh, one of the things you want to think about is, is, you know, what's your financial situation? Can you, can you, if you're, can you wait a year? Can you do it? Can you actually go to a school for a year and, and then try to get funding the second year? Can you afford to do that? Can you not? Things like that. Because most people are going to give you money. So I have one other suggestion too. So, and that is that if you have a particular interest, like some people, I knew when I went to graduate school, I wanted to do economic history. So then it's important to actually look at where the economic historians are and actually try to read some of their work just to see if they're interested in the kind of things that they're doing. Because if you're not, then pretty much right. what you Show see the faculty doing for their research is going to strongly influence what you do as a PhD student for your dissertation. Mm-hmm. And so that's one, one reason to actually spend some time looking. All right. Well, that's really helpful advice, I think. And it, it fits with a lot of the context that we've been hearing, you know, quite a bit of conversation about recently of just like the importance of math and all these different scores and telling the story in particular and sort of after uh, you've met some some threshold that will be different by school. Other things start to matter. It sounds to me that uh, you know Arizona might focus on some other sort of uh, features, whereas you know, like it seems like schools pick different things to focus on, um, and and that's why you should apply to a wide range of schools because people will read your application with sort of different color. I just I want to fast forward just a touch here. Um, so let's say there you're an, either an applicant or advising an applicant who's been admitted to more than one PhD program. Uh, what are the types of things that you think are important among, like after it choose, like how do you choose between those two offers? Do you just go look at the the ranking and you pick that, or like how how, how exactly should you imagine picking between these things? 
Well, it's a mixture of things. I think it's advantageous to be at a higher ranked place because uh, mm-hmm. usually it, it's hard for people to get placed at schools above where their where their ranking is. I think, and so there's some advantages right. to doing that. But you also want to be comfortable. You want to feel like that that you're you're going to fit in where you're going to be, and that you want to mm-hmm. feel like you're going to get personal attention as well. So you don't mm-hmm. want to get swallowed up necessarily by with a whole bunch of other right. PhD students and stuff. Uh, right. So. Also, how much how much funding they can provide you, uh, I think it's going to be really important. So I would say go and, and also though once you've been admitted, I would spend some time looking at the faculty to see right. more to look more carefully. Is this what I want to do? Now some people just have broad interests and, and they're going to choose once they get there. Mm-hmm. Other people already know kind of where they're what they want to do. They might change their mind, but they might not. So looking at what the faculty do, I think is really important. I, and I, I guess like I, I kind of want to push back a little bit on that funding part, because like, so for instance, Arizona, uh, at the time when I was on the market and I went to Arizona, uh, w- didn't offer very much money compared to other student, other programs. And I actually know a couple of students that turned down significantly higher funded offers from other programs because the placements at Arizona were so much better. Oh, than some of that's these other huge. Places. Actually placements is really important. So, yeah. so like in my mind, it was like, I I'll take out student loans if I have to, because like my whole career is what I'm trying to maximize over here. Not necessarily like, 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 like you could imagine like uh, location mattering too. And like Tucson happens to be a nice place, but like, um, you know, I would take a poor location with good placements over sort of the, the opposite combination. I, I agree. I mean, you're looking for attributes in the program. And, and so, um, you know, making an extra five or $10,000 a year as a PhD student, I mean, you're pretty much living not that high anyway and actually probably having a lot yeah. of fun or whatever it's you become an assistant professor you make a lot more money and suddenly you have all these other extra expenses you didn't ever realize you were going to <laughs> i think play, play as i was going to say placement definitely matters i would also advise or at least i advise some students to talk to the grad students there oh definitely to get a feel like how they feel about the department and one of the questions that i always tell people it's like you know, ask them what they like about the department and I'll tell you what they like about the department and then ask them what they don't like about the department. And they certainly must <laughs> tell you things that maybe not. And every, like, know, know that as an applicant, like, no, like, no department is perfect. Like, you know, there's a lot of issues in economics and no department is perfect. And there's some people who are going to have fine experiences and people that are going to have not so great experiences. So like, take those for what they are experiences, but but use it as a more information to help you maybe. Yeah, and I, I guess the, another reason I wanted to ask this question was, I guess so I could make this comment, which is sort of unfair, but uh, I think there's a lot of economics departments that are maybe like, they're great. I would love to work there. The people that work there are awesome, but they're not ranked like amazingly, but like the people there are all amazing and they seem to just care about mm-hmm. their grad students a lot. And it can be hard to know that. And like one example, I think I tweeted about this recently is like Texas A&M. Not only do they have awesome people there, but their students have really good outcomes. And like, I don't know where their ranking is, but it's not like in the top 10. But if you look at like the top end students where they place from Texas A&M from the PhD program, yeah, yeah, it's competitive with like, like better ranked programs. And like, I, I I don't know, like as an empirical micro person, like it seems like that's, I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Look, I think placement, I would would actually put placement first, but what I would say is the higher ranked programs likely to have better placement, but I would look carefully at the placement. Um, Maybe when when you're making that margin decision. Yeah, when you're making the margin, because, you know, everything's a package, right? So you want to look at, you know, all the various things you're going to do. Are you going to, I think comfort's actually going to be good. Um, So I'll make a plug for Arizona. I mean, we spend a lot of time in Arizona with our students 
Uh, and we're also, we're pushing people to, to do research as early as we can. And so that's mm -hmm. what that research methods course I talked about earlier was about. Right. And, uh, and so and all the, after the first year, almost all the, all the hurdles are basically writing papers, which is what you're going to do the rest of your life. You're not going to take tests. Uh, you're going to write Which is tests. so funny that the, it's so funny you say that because like when you're saying like, oh, we don't pay attention to the writing. And it's true. Like in most departments, they don't pay attention to the GRE writing score. And I'm like, but really all that I do is write. Exactly. And, and so <laughs> like, I pay so attention funny. to GRE writing score. It's so backwards. And we, yeah. and we spend a lot of time. That, that's another thing for the course, right? Getting people involved in doing research earlier because we're forcing them to write earlier and present earlier as well. And I think that's really yeah. important. And we, and we yeah. try to make it a friendly environment. I mean, the school I went to when, when it was at the time, I mean, I don't know what it's like now. You know, they brought in 60 mm -hmm. students a year or whatever, and five of them would graduate. Now, we, right. we fooled them because we had about 12 graduate. But uh, so that was a pretty intense competitive situation. And we're, 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 we're just saying, look, we have a standard we need you to meet. And, you know, where you're going to go and how you're going to do is dependent on how hard you work and what you do. we talked about sort of two broad things. We spent a lot of the time on like, what does it take to get into a PhD program in economics? And we just sort of mentioned at the front end, like it's really tough. It's really competitive. Uh, it's, it's hard to figure out how to filter from the large number of applicants you're going to get. So there's going to be this initial screen, whether it's from a computer or from a person just like shifting around papers based off of GPA and GRE and probably the better ranked the program, the like tighter that screen is going to be. Uh, and then amongst sort of, you know, the top 25% of the applicants or whatever it is, there's going to be some opportunity to, to sort of get reshuffled uh, in, in that initial numeric ranking. And that, that reshuffling can come from a letter of recommendation or a personal statement or, uh, you know, some other type of narrative that's being built around you. Uh, and importantly, we talked about how, or Price mentioned how it's not like you have to be to get a PhD in economics, a 4.0 student for forever since you were three years old with an 800 on every <laughs> test score, but like your recent performance in key, what are deemed to be key classes is important for admissions. And then we, we talked a little bit about, you know, uh, after you get in, what do you do? And it's just sort of, I don't know, become like a sociologist, like person trying to learn every feature of life at the place and pick the one that is your best match. Every week, we like to ask our guests for our recommendation of the week. This can be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, a quote, a book, a kitchen recipe, anything that improves your life. Price, what is your recommendation for the week? Oh, I've been given this recommendation for the last three years. You have to go okay. see Hamilton. Oh. It is the greatest musical. It's of quite all time. good. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've gone live to hundred, like probably 100 musicals and things like that. It, it has Absolutely. it all. Now, I'm an economic historian, right? So I, right. I'm biased towards this, <laughs> a hip-hop musical about the first Treasury Secretary of the United States. You know, right. How could I uh, not? Chef's kiss. And I've got a good friend, Dick Silla, <laughs> who's been telling me how great Hamilton is forever. But, <laughs> I mean, it's the, it, the music is spectacular. The, the story, you laugh, you cry. You know, it's, a, it's about the founding of a nation. You know, it's got everything that you could possibly have. And so, you know, it's on Disney Channel put it on and it, it, the sounds kind of muddy on the D Disney channel production though. So you definitely need huh. to, to put the closed captions on. But when I saw it live or wherever it, it, the, the, the singing was clear as a bell, you could understand it, but it is wow. just the greatest thing. Greatest, greatest musical of all time in my view. That's awesome. 
I, 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 I mean, never seen it. I want to see it, but I know like the lyrics to most songs. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's worth buying the Disney channel for a month just so you can watch it. I, oh yeah. I've seen it. I got I duped into know. going and I, I said dupe because like, I don't like musicals in general. Now I'm going to upset both my advisor and your advisor, Sebastian. But like <laughs> I, I went and I loved it. It was awesome. So I, like, I was in Chicago and someone was yeah. like, my wife is sick. Come to Hamilton with me. I was like, oh, I don't want to spend this much money, but fine. I'll go, I'll go oh with you. God. And it was phenomenal. And like the whole time I was like, this is great. Is How does a best? Oh yeah. yeah. So I got, I got, yeah, I paid a, I paid a boatload to see it with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the original cast in, in New York. But wow. I, you know, I saw it twice in Chicago, and both times it was almost as good. As a matter of fact, some ways better than it had been in Chicago, in, in New York. Yeah. So it was spectacular. Wow, that's awesome. That's right. Don't throw um, away your shot. That's a key. <laughs> yeah, if you, it actually gave me a little bit of anxiety when they were like, keep writing and working all the time. I was like, I should be working now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So, so I have a Mac, and I find that sometimes when I run – uh, bits of code that take a long time to run my computer will turn off and the code won't run so the tip is a two-part tip the first is to figure out on your computer how to turn off that setting so on the mac it's pretty easy i just go to battery and then i untick a box that will auto turn off uh, the computer after a certain amount of time uh, but then the second part of the tip is to remember to turn mm. that to to retick that box so uh the way that i uh enforce this uh memory is i change the desktop uh backgrounds to be like a monotone yellow or some color just that's like not my standard desktop background <laughs> so then the next time i, I uh, see. come back to the computer i can remember that i have turned I this option on that will not let my computer turn off uh, a couple times before i had done this uh you know i found my battery totally drained you know once the coding task had been completed uh, my computer was overheating. So this is just a, a little minor thing that makes my life uh, a little bit better off. Listen, it works. It works. Um, my tip of the week, it's going to be something very simple. Um, I really strongly encourage recommending spending maybe 10 minutes or five minutes of your end of the workday to plan where you're going to do the next day. I know a lot of people do it. But um, I'm trying to be more mindful. Like I used to do it a lot. Now I stopped doing it. I'm trying to get back to it. And every time I do it, I'm like, ah, oh, this just is like I wake up and I'm like, I know what I got to do. This is great. So like really take that extra effort to plan your tomorrow. I like that. I, Cal Newport is all about that too. Good idea. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, I guess just my website at the University of Arizona. All right. You can just Google his name and you probably <laughs> find the website. Really Believe easy. me, there, there are, I can't find any other price fish back. This is, when <laughs> I got into grad school and I told my dad who I was going to be working with, Price Fishback, he was like, when I Google his name, he's the only person that comes up. He's really famous. I'm like, that's because his name is Price Fishback. It's the only guy named exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You can match me that's really awesome. easily in yeah. census records. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, great. That's all we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for tuning in. Bye. Thanks.